Let us now read together what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 4. Page 477 of your Book of Praise. There we find God's word summarized as follows. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No, for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly displeased with our original as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally. As he has declared, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Galatians 3, verse 10. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. After the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 103, the stanzas 3 and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, right now we are in the midst of a federal election. Daily, we are bombarded with the various pronouncements of the party leaders. It's hard to keep up with the many claims and positions the political party leaders come up with. They're constantly shifting their focus. And they will take the position that they think is most expedient. Law and order is also one of the issues during this election campaign. The various parties all have a different approach. The parties all agree that there is a crime problem in Canada. But no one can agree as to how to remedy it. The one party emphasizes the muscle of the law. They want the laws to be strictly enforced and to hand out punishment where it is deserved. The other wants to emphasize rehabilitation and to downplay punishment. They want to find ways in which they can prevent crime. As they discuss these issues, they sometimes become personal with one another. They accuse each other of being dishonest, of changing their minds and their positions. And they accuse each other of not being trustworthy. Brothers and sisters, we live in a sinful world. It's understandable that when it comes to law and order issues and to all the issues that face us, that we are not able to take a consistent approach. And that is because we ourselves are sinful human beings. But that is not the way it is with God. God has taken a straight line throughout the history of mankind. He, when he made his laws, he did not waver or change or shift. No, he remained true to himself. He is trustworthy. And that is of great comfort to us. For that gives us a sense of security. 
We are dealing with a God on whom we can rely. We are dealing with a God who knows exactly what he is doing. We are dealing with a God who is totally just and totally merciful. That's what I will preach to you about this afternoon. The theme is, the Lord remains true to himself. And then we will see three things. We will see in the first place that he remains true to his law. In the second place that he remains true to his punishment. In the third place that he remains true to his love. And so I will preach to you about this theme. The Lord remains true to himself. He remains true to his law, to his punishment, and to his love. The first song we sang this afternoon during the worship service spoke of God's majesty. That word is also used in answer 11. It speaks there about sin committed against the most high majesty of God. What does the word majesty refer to? What do you think of when you hear that word? Well, that reminds you of the queen, doesn't it? For that's how you address the queen. You address her as Majesty the Queen. To refer to her in any other way would be highly disrespectful, and you would be severely reprimanded for it. You would not speak to her as if she were just somebody off the street or some close friend whom you would call by her first name. And when we think of the Queen, then it is not difficult to treat her differently from others. When she appears in public, the queen is always elegantly dressed and surrounded by smartly dressed, uniformed policemen and dignitaries. Especially when she performs an official function, then we see her in all her splendor. At such a time, she will arrive in a beautiful and ornate horse-drawn carriage. Everything shines and glitters. She is surrounded by others who are also elegantly dressed She lives in a beautiful castle, and she has many, many servants, all of whom attend to her every need. The queen is full of majesty and splendor. It's hard not to be impressed. She also has great symbolic power. Our government here in Canada rules in the name of the queen, and all the courts in the land will have a picture of our queen in the courtrooms. And when you are summoned to a court, then you are summoned in the name of the queen. A queen is a very important person. When you are in her presence, you have to conduct yourself properly. Can you imagine if you were invited to meet her and you would start swearing at her and calling her names? Can you imagine if you spit in her face and told her that you would never do anything she asked of you, that she's your enemy even? What would you think would happen to you if you did that? You would be thrown into jail so fast it would make your head swim. And you will most certainly be punished. You cannot treat the queen with disdain, for then you not only despise her, but then you despise everything she stands for, including all the institutions that she represents. A queen, however, is only a human being. King and queens come and go, and they have their own personal problems to deal with. Their power and their splendor and glory, although great, is still very much limited. But now compare the majesty of the queen to the majesty of our Lord God in heaven. 
That is a trillion times a trillion times greater. We can only have an inkling of the majesty of God. In the Bible, we have a few descriptions of God's majesty. We can think of Isaiah 6, which we just read, where the prophet was given a vision of the majesty of God. He saw the glory of the Lord in his temple, and it was quite a vision. We are told that he saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And Isaiah's eyes were especially drawn to the train of his robe, for it filled the temple. Now we all know what a train of a robe is. Such a train is worn especially by a bride. A bride wears a white robe, usually with a long train behind it. Some, some, some of you will remember the wedding of Diana to Prince Charles. Her train was so long that she needed several people to carry it. It was magnificent. But now picture the Lord God on his throne. He too is wearing a white robe with a train. But the train of his robe is so large that it fills the whole temple. Measurements of the temple are not given, but the temple would have been enormous. You can imagine that this will have been quite a beautiful and wonderful picture. Everything is dominated by the presence of the Lord. And that is only a description of God on his throne. But now think about all that he stands for. He is the almighty creator of the whole universe. He is the one who put the billions upon billions of stars in the sky and who made them behave in accordance with his preordained laws. Everything here on earth also go in accordance with the laws that he has set. He made the seasons. He causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall. In creation, everything is given its own special place. It's all God's doing. He is the almighty God who is full of splendor and majesty. And God created everything so that his creation would be spawned according to the way that he made things. A maple tree would bring forth a maple tree. The tree would correspond to the properties that God had put into the seed. A maple tree cannot produce a thorn bush. The same thing is true of the animal world. A certain type of monkey produces another monkey of the same type. And a whale fish brings forth another whale fish. Water will freeze at a certain temperature. Wood will burn when you put a flame to it. Everything that God made responds in exactly the way that God programmed it. But now we come to the creation of man. Man is also supposed to respond in accordance with the law that God set forth for him. However, he created man with a free will. In other words, God created the possibility for man to deviate from his law, from the preordained way that he ordered things. He gave man a choice. He did not want automatic obedience to his law. He wanted man to respond to him out of his own free will so that man would glorify his name forever and ever. Unfortunately, man made the wrong choice. That doesn't make God the author of sin. No, man brought sin upon himself. And note well that answer 9 also states that. It states that man acted in deliberate disobedience to God. You may think that when Adam and Eve sinned, 
that this was an accident, that this was an aberration. In other words, that it was nothing more than a temporary lapse of judgment on their part. Normally they weren't like that, but then thoughtlessly they did something foolish. But brothers and sisters, that's not the way it was. When Adam and Eve sinned, they knew exactly what they were doing. And when the serpent spoke, Adam and Eve knew exactly who he was, namely the enemy of God. They also knew that whatever the serpent said to them went totally against what God had told them. God had said to them that if they are disobedient, they will die. The serpent, however, said that when you are disobedient, you will be like God. Two completely different things. Adam and Eve had received everything that was good from God. And there was nothing that they had ever received from him that was not good. They were even given the most important position in creation, namely to be God's vice regents. They were made the crown of God's creation. God gave them some of his majesty and glory and splendor. As we saw the last time, and you saw man at work, and then you saw God at work. He was the perfect image of God in heaven. And while in paradise, the Lord God regularly came down to the earth and walked among them and spoke to them. But what did Adam and Eve do? They sinned against that almighty God. Nevertheless, they sinned against his majesty. That was the most rebellious and treacherous and horrendous act ever committed on earth. And that wasn't just a misstep. It wasn't just a lapse in judgment. It's not as if the Lord God had given them a whole complicated set of rules so that he would not be clear exactly what his will was. On the contrary, it was very simple and straightforward. He gave one rule only. Don't eat from that tree. It couldn't be simpler. There was no possibility of confusion. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, it was premeditated evil on their part. For when, the, for when the servant spoke, Eve knew exactly who was speaking to her. But she, together with Adam, decided to be disobedient to God. And that was a conscious choice that they made against God. And once they made that choice, there was no going back. The Lord God cannot just overlook that sin as an aberration. Because it wasn't. It was deliberate. But if God will now go back on his word and say that his law no longer functions, then his whole creation would fall apart. Then his whole creation would cease to exist. And actually, then God would cease to exist. And that's impossible. It's impossible for the almighty, perfect God not to do what he says he is going to do. He has to remain true to the laws that he set into place. It is impossible for him to do otherwise. It is impossible for it to be otherwise. Everything would fall apart. 
and therefore he remained true to himself. And therefore he also has to remain true to his punishment as well. Because the punishment is part and parcel of the law that he put into place. There is no way that God can now go back on his word. When he said to Adam and Eve in paradise that if they eat of the tree of good and evil they will die, he had to remain true to his word. Even though after they fell into sin they were no longer capable of keeping the law, God still had to maintain his right. And God is not only terribly displeased with our original sin, that is the sin that we committed in Adam, but also with our actual sins, that is the sins that we commit every day. And so he has to punish our sins with a just judgment. If there's one thing that people have difficulty with, it is the punishment and wrath of God. There's already so much misery in this world. Do we now also have to live under the threat of punishment from God? Well, brothers and sisters, many religions will play up God's punishment. Whenever there is some calamity here on earth, some religious group will pipe up and say that this happened because of God's punishment. You hear people say that, for example, about the 9-11 disaster and about hurricanes and earthquakes. These things happen, so they say, because of the decadent lifestyle of the people. He is angry with them. But is that the message of the gospel? Is that what the gospel is all about? Does the Lord God come to us with his law full of threats? Is that, for example, how we ought to do our work of evangelism? That we should tell the people to repent or else God will send all kinds of calamities upon them? Do we want to scare others into heaven? It's true that all the sin and misery came on earth because of sin. God is a just God and he also punishes sin. There is no doubt about that. We also sang about that and read about that when we read from Psalm 110. The Lord God, however, comes to us with the gospel first. And you know what gospel means, don't you? Also, you boys and girls know what that means. It means good news, great news. God is not eager to destroy and wreak havoc and threaten us with his wrath. No, he wants reconciliation and peace. He reveals himself, first of all, through his son, Jesus Christ, and he visited his wrath upon him. That is what God wants the world to know first of all. In this world, we are taught that when you make a mistake, you have to face the consequences. For that reason, there are all kinds of laws and regulations to keep you in law and to keep you in line. You are taught to be responsible for yourself or else. When you transgress the law, then you have to bear the punishment. And it's a good thing that there are laws with teeth attached. But let's not in that regard confuse God's laws with man's laws. The gospel tells us something that never ever could have come up in the hearts of men. The Bible tells us that the Lord God has visited his wrath. Not upon you, not upon me, but that he has visited his wrath upon his son. His own dear son. 
It is impossible for us to bear the burden of God's wrath. And you don't have to. God has found a remedy through his son. That's the gospel. And yet the Bible does speak about the eternal wrath of God and God's curse. Does that not contradict his love and his mercy? No, brothers and sisters. In the moment we will sing from Psalm 103, he'll stay his wrath. The Lord is merciful. Has it ever occurred to you that God did not immediately execute his judgment? No, he waits. And he warns. For you see, it is not God's intention to punish as soon as he can. But to convince the people to repent. For that reason, he first comes to them with his love. For that reason, he also establishes a covenant. The covenant is a relationship of love. When he introduced the ten words of the covenant, he does not begin with a threat that if they do not keep them, he will reject us and visit his wrath upon them. No, he begins by stating that he is a loving God in heaven who has rescued his people from their enemies. He comes to them by stating that he loves them and that he does not want them to come to harm. And he is always true to his love. We come to the third point. For please consider who does the punishing. It's our Heavenly Father. It is the same God who has been revealed to us in the first Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism. Namely, the one who is a loving and merciful God. An almighty God who has revealed himself through his son Jesus Christ. Who paid the penalty for us. Can you imagine if God would have left his punishment up to a disinterested party? Let's say he pre-programmed a perfect computer in order to do that. And he would say to the computer, How should I punish those people on earth who rebelled against me? Or suppose he would get a jury of angels to make a judgment. And he would ask them that same question. Would you not rather that your heavenly father would make that judgment? What do you think your child, who clearly needs to be punished for his misdeeds, would say to you? Would he or she want somebody else to mete out the punishment? Or would he want his father to do that? Of course, a child would choose his father. The words punishment and wrath sound so harsh in our ears. We would rather be quickly done with it and think about God's mercy. But can you imagine if the Lord God were to do that? Suppose he were to say to us, I can see that you're not able to keep my laws, and so I'm going to have to lower my standards a little bit. That sounds very loving and kind, doesn't it? But what would you say about a wife who would say to her adulterous husband, Okay, I know it's very difficult for you to stay away from other women, And so I'm going to lower my standards a little bit and give you permission to play around with other women once in a while. Then you would say, that woman is crazy. That has nothing to do with love anymore. How can you be satisfied with shared love? Well, that's also the way it is with our relationship with God. 
God has established a covenant relationship, a relationship of love with his people, with all those who put their trust in him. And that means that he wants all of us. And that is why he sent his son in the flesh, so that that covenant relationship of love can be maintained. We read together from Psalm 110. And there we also speak about the majesty of God. But it speaks there about the majesty of the Son of God. For David is clearly speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who was revealed in the New Testament as the priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is the only high priest. He is the only one who was able to bring God and man together. And he is that priest forever and ever. He is the one who won the battle against the evil one. And now, as it says in verse 3 of that psalm, he is arrayed in holy majesty. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, we are right back to the majesty of God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we may once again share in God's majesty, just like it was in paradise. Even though we sin against the majesty of God all the time, the Lord Jesus Christ, because of his high priestly offers, is able to restore us. And through faith, God makes it possible for us to be restored. It is that message of salvation that has to go out to all those who want to listen. We have to speak to others about God's great love for all those who put their trust in him. And that we do not speak about God's wrath in the first place. That would certainly not motivate them to worship God. That would only turn them off and away. What then do you speak about? You speak to them about the great love of God shown on the cross. And that they may not scorn God's love shown to all those who believe in him. You have to tell them not to despise the cross. You have to tell them not to despise what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. In this world, we try to play off mercy and justice. That is what the political leaders in Canada try to do with regard to man's loss. And ultimately, that's, we, that's what we all try to do. But we may not try to do that with regard to God. He is unique. He is a just God, and at the same time, he is a merciful God. He is a God who always remains true to his love. In so doing, he remains true to himself. Amen.